I have here a book. It's called The Cross of Christ. Uh, this is um, my copy of The Cross of Christ that I bought when I was in first year at annual conference in 1936. <laughs> not quite, not quite. Uh, and um, I, I've I pulled it off the shelf, of course, again this year and was reading through it again. And as I told you the other night, I'd never actually quite finished the last couple of chapters. I mean, the book is fantastic. It's worth just the first couple of chapters alone, probably. But I thought, no, I'm going to actually finish. And, and really, it was fantastic. I wish I'd read those final chapters, um, well, 24 years ago. But anyway, uh, that's my copy. And uh, we brought a whole lot of copies up uh, for the bookstall and we sold them all which is great, except this one. We have one left. One. So we're going to auction it off. <laughs> we're going to auction off this uh, book, Across the Christ, which really is worth, it's just a great read. It will really help you love God and know God better. We're going to auction it off. The money is going to go to proclaiming the cross at Sydney Uni. It's going to go to supporting our super PMs for this semester where we want to proclaim the cross of Jesus to the campus that they might live. So that's what the money's going to be for. That's, that's, that's a good cause, right? Now, you say, oh, but I already bought one this week, so I won't participate in that. Well, why don't you buy this one and give the other one away to a friend? Oh, that's a great idea. So, how much... $60 I heard last. How much? Don't clap. We're going to go way past that. Sorry? A hundred and twenty. Thank you. Hold it higher. Does that help? I've never been to an auction in my life. What? No. Oh, I don't know, actually. Can you pay by FPOS at the bookshop? Yes. Okay. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly the bank account gets deep. Yes. $140. Going towards the proclamation of the cross, and 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 you get you get a moment, a, a fleeting moment of glory. <laughs> I'm sure that's what Reese is going for right now. Anyway, <laughs> 140. Wow! Last time we did this, you know what it got up to? Paddy Ben, what did it get up to last time? He can't remember. <laughs> I'm sure. What was it? 145, you reckon? No, is that what you're offering to pay? 145? Yeah, 145. Okay. 150. <laughs> going once. Going twice. You could just freak him out by just going big. Going <laughs> 160. Make me a promise that you'll read it though, right? If you buy the book. 160. 175. We're going to go fast now. This is getting lame. 175. 
180. Yep. Yep. Going once. 210. Late late entrant over there. 210. $300. Going once. Going twice. Four hundred dollars. Go. <laughs> Who is that? Who is that down there? I don't know, but he's wearing a suit and he's got a fancy tie on. Does that? Um, Four hundred. Going once. Going twice. Sold. Do make sure you pay the bookshop because otherwise I think I've just paid $400 for a book I already own. Um, why don't we pray though and pray that actually that money gets used well in the proclamation of the gospel of the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we seek to proclaim your cross on our campuses uh, this semester that, Lord, you would show yourself to be powerful and merciful in bringing people to faith and repentance through the message of your son on the cross. And we pray, Father, you would use this money and all of our gifts towards the proclamation of Jesus and the salvation of many to your glory. Amen. It has been a great week serving together here, and we do serve each other together. Uh, I do just want to point out one person for you, uh, just because I think this is sort of appropriate. It's just before we get into the talk, it's a nice moment to, to recognise. I want to give a special thanks to Steve Williams. He runs the sound and tech team and this is Steve's 10th annual conference. 10. Uh, Steve kindly gives, gives up a whole week each year to provide pr truly professional sound and lighting and tech for us at a ridiculously cheap rate. And what's more, he has a passion to train people so that they can serve in that way in churches and conferences everywhere. It's just a beautiful thing. So the reason you don't know about him is because he's trained his team to do it so well so nothing gets in the way of hearing and responding to the Word of God. <laughs> I sort of knew you were going to do that. Like, I just sort of knew after 10 years. Um, but that's humble service, right? So I think it's right that after 10 years we do honour him with thanks as we have and to, to God give thanks to him in our hearts for his service. Now, uh, before we get into the talk, uh, a bit of a tradition in the final talk at Ancon is I know that many of you are weary and you're tired and this, even though you don't want to, this becomes a moment where you just sort of start to just, it's, your body says, let's sleep now. Um, so, you know about those standing up desks now that people have, you know, apparently they re help reduce, you know, lose weight, they improve brain function, they reduce your greenhouse gas emissions or they do all sorts of things apparently or something. Um, <laughs> But standing up does help you stay awake, so we have a bit of a tradition. If you're feeling sleepy, you have permission from all of us just to get up, move to the side, and stand there and listen, okay? And then if you feel like you're awake again, don't go all the way into the side. Find a seat around the edges and just sit down again. But it's better that you stay awake than just fall asleep, okay? So if you, you have permission to do that at any, any point in time, okay? Just take responsibility for your opportunity to learn from the Word of God. Okay. 
Good work. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> no worries. No, you're laughing, but actually, I, I think there'll be a whole bunch of people standing up pretty soon right now. Okay. Let's get into uh, God's Word. Uh, we're looking there at the stupid word of the cross. Uh, all week, we've been reflecting on the message of the cross. And like me, I hope you've been struck again in wonder by it, by all that God has done for us there. And I hope that you've been rejoicing in it, in the love and mercy that God has shown us in Christ and his death for us. But this message about the cross is regarded as a stupid word by the world. It's always been regarded as stupid and it always will. So page 42 there in your book, you can see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We proclaim Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This message about a crucified Messiah made no sense to the Jews. The Messiah was meant to rule, not be killed. And so the Christian message that the Messiah had suffered and died, that was a stumbling block to faith for the Jews. And for the Gentiles, it made no sense to worship someone who was killed like a criminal. That didn't have the sound of true wisdom. It seemed foolish, stupid. You can see on your page there a famous piece of graffiti from the 3rd century. It shows a man, Alex Animos, worshipping somebody on a cross. But the person on the cross has a donkey's head. It's poking fun at Christians who worship a crucified man, which in the mind of the graffiti artist is as stupid as worshipping a donkey. Alex Animos worships his God. Christians are so stupid. There's another example on your page there from a non-Christian oracle. In this case, someone, that's someone who served this case in the temple of Apollo, who purported to give words of advice from the god Apollo to those who wanted it. And in this case, the oracle is giving advice to a man whose wife happened to be a Christian. The man wants to know, what should I do about that? She's become a Christian. This is what the, the oracle said. Let her go as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions, singing in lamentation for a god who died in delusions who was condemned by right-thinking judges and killed in hideous fashion by the worst of deaths, a death bound by iron. Christians persist in these stupid beliefs about a God who died and who died in the most hideous and despised of ways. That was the view of the world from the very beginning. And nothing has changed. Because tragically, as Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And yet for us, the cross is at the centre, as we've seen this week. See there how Paul puts it in Galatians 6, which we looked at last night. He says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now that word translated boasting means there to, to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. Paul says, may I never glory in anything else except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world may revel in all sorts of things, but I'm going to enthuse about, I'm going to rejoice in, I'm going to celebrate this, that the Lord Jesus Christ died, and, we, and all of that means for us. 
What more could I possibly boast in than that? Now, my hope and prayer is that this week at Ancon makes you want to go, Amen. Amen to that. And that Paul's exclamation there has become a little bit of your attitude, your prayer. May I never boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul is determined to keep on preaching Christ crucified, despite the fact that the world thinks it's a stupid message. You can see Paul's resolve there in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that does raise a little bit of a question. Is Paul really saying there that the only thing that he's going to profess to know is Jesus and the cross? You know, so the Corinthians say, So, Paul, can you tell us about prophecy or relationships or prayer? Sorry, I've decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus and his cross. Is that what Paul's really saying? Well, plainly, it can't be that. Because in the rest of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about all sorts of other things. In particular, Paul says here in chapter 2 that he's resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. But at the climax of the letter, the high point to which the whole letter builds in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. So did Paul have a change of mind between chapter 2, I'm just on about the cross, and chapter 15, it's all about the resurrection? No, not at all. The problem here is that we often rip Paul's statement in chapter 2 out of context. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians in EU public meetings this year, so hopefully some of you are familiar with this. The problem that Paul is addressing in chapter 2 is that the Corinthian Christians have walked a whole lot of worldly values into their Christian community, and it's causing havoc amongst them, as well as bringing dishonour to God. So in particular... They'd walked in the worldly values of what constituted wisdom. Because in worldly Corinthian society, wisdom meant impressive rhetorical skills. And the Corinthian Christians had failed to leave that sort of worldly assessment of wisdom at the door. And they now walked that in and are assessing their Christian leaders based on their rhetorical skillfulness. But Paul says, that's not how it should be amongst God's people. And I'm not going to play that game. So I've decided not to try to mix it, rhetorically. I decided rather to know nothing amongst you except Jesus and the cross. That is, I came with a message from God that the world out there will regard as foolish. They won't think it's wise. But in that very way, God is going to expose the foolishness of the world. Now, precisely how God's going to do that through this message about the cross, we're going to come back to in a moment. But the point is, when Paul says, I decided to know nothing amongst you about Jesus, except Jesus and him crucified, he's not making a syllabus con- co- uh, comment. You know, if you can pretend you're a school teacher for a moment. You know, you have your syllabus. Here's all the things I want to teach. He's not making a syllabus content. The only thing on my syllabus is Jesus and him crucified. He's making a contextual point about the Corinthians and their particular obsession and the decision Paul made in light of some of their problems. So if you flip over the page to page 43, the first thing then to say about the cross and proclamation is that the cross drives our proclamation. 
You can see what Paul says there. He says, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. So just pause there for a sec. Paul here has a very clear vision of the coming judgment day, right? He's got his horizon right. He's got the right final horizon. The coming judgment day when we'll all appear before Christ as our judge. And knowing himself what it is to have a right fear of God's judgment, he tries to persuade others as we ought also. But that's not his only motivation. Have a look at verse 14. For the love of Christ, he says, urges us on. Because we're convinced that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. So Paul is gripped by the love of Christ. Not merely in the sense that he has a a deep sense of Christ's love for him personally, which he does, clearly, because you can see that in other places. Here I think he's saying he's gripped by the fact of Jesus' love for all humanity, that Jesus died for all, so that they might die to their old selves and now live for him. And because he's been gripped by Jesus' profound love for all humanity, Paul feels compelled. He's gripped by this astounding fact of Jesus' love for all humanity. He's driven by it. He can't conceive now of any other course of action than to proclaim Christ and the salvation that his love has secured. And to urge people passionately and patiently and persistently to be reconciled to God through Christ and his cross, which is exactly what he goes on to do in the rest of this passage. That's what it means, see, to be gripped by the love of Christ. To have a clear and compelling vision of the cross. We so easily lose that clear and compelling vision, don't we? We lose sight of the cross that this is the astounding extent of Jesus' love which affects every single person with whom we come into contact. Somehow it gets obscured by work, by study, by worrying about how I look or worrying about whether he or she likes me or all the other details of life. That clear and compelling vision of the cross and the love of Jesus, it can even get lost amidst the busyness of doing ministry, of serving others. We can have all the activity of ministry, but somehow lose sight of the love of Jesus, which which is actually at its heart. But of course, the danger there is once you take away the heart, it's actually very hard to keep going. What under God provided the motivation for Paul to keep going? Well, he says it here. In part, it's the love of Christ for the world seen in the cross. That script his heart. He got it. And it's driven him forward, compelled him to proclaim Christ. So if you feel that you're in danger of losing that vision of the love of Christ, what can you do? Well, maybe make space in your life to reflect again on the cross of Christ after this week. Make sure you spend time in the scriptures. Train your heart and your mind to focus on Christ's love by learning the scriptures. Learn some memory verses. Sing Christian songs in your heart that point you to the cross. And pray that as you recapture that vision of Christ's love at the cross, pray that you might be compelled to proclaim him because of the love of Christ. 
Well, let's move on to think about proclaiming Jesus Christ and his cross. I'm really encouraging us here to think about why. Why should you boldly proclaim the cross of Jesus, even when you know that the world will often think it's foolish and stupid? Why should you, in the strength of God's Spirit, boldly, lovingly speak the cross to your friends on campus when you know they're just going to raise their eyebrows and go, that's weird? Well, the Bible gives us several reasons why you should do it. The first is this. The cross is God's answer to the world's deepest need. I don't know if you know the incident in the Old Testament in Numbers 21 when the Israelites under Moses were complaining against God, the God who just saved them out of slavery in Egypt, and the Lord then sends venomous snakes among them and many Israelites died. The people then realise this is the consequence of their sin. So they repent. And Moses prays to God, and this then is what the Lord says to him. I'll read it out to you from Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And then we're told, So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole, Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now Jesus in John 3 picks up that incident and says, that is another shadow, just another shadow of what God would do through his own death. Have a look there, John 3, on your page, verse 14 to 18. Jesus says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here is the world's greatest need, to not perish under God's just condemnation, to be saved from his wrath and live. Now, there are so many terrible and real needs in this world. We do need peace in the Middle East. We do need to get food to the poor. We do need to care about sex slaves and child prostitution and sexual abuse and corrupt governments and prejudice and bigotry and the environment that God's given us. These are all pressing needs in our world. And it doesn't honour Jesus when we say these things don't matter at all. They do matter. As Christians, we're called on to love our neighbour. But don't be misled. Under God, we could work for the solution of all those problems and there would still be a much deeper problem. Humanity would still be doomed because apart from the salvation that is found in Jesus and his cross, we are rightly under God's condemnation. That's why we have to proclaim the cross because only there in the death of Jesus for us is the solution to the world's deepest problem 
Only there is eternal life. Only there is lasting and eternal salvation. So whatever else you commit yourself to doing this semester, commit yourself, please, to praying for and participating in God's proclamation of his answer to the world's deepest problem. Proclaim Christ and his cross. Second reason the Bible gives us to proclaim the cross is because the cross of Jesus is where, surprisingly, astoundingly, God reveals himself to us. Four things God shows us about himself there at the cross. First of all, there is love. The cross is hardly a place where anyone would expect to see love. Even as Christians. Now we know that God showed his love for us at the cross. But we might not expect that at the cross, God reveals that he is in himself love. As Father, Son and Spirit. I mean, if the Father is pouring out his wrath on the Son, that hardly seems the place where you're going to see intra-Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son. But that is precisely what we see at the cross. The cross reveals the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. Have a look at what at John 14, 30 and 31, what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I will not talk much, sorry, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. We're meant to look at the cross and go, wow, Jesus really does love his heavenly father. Look how he does the father's will. But also in going obediently to the cross, Jesus is remaining or abiding in the father's love for him. This time, John 15, 10. Jesus says, I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So at the cross, we see the mutual love of the Father for the Son and the Son within, and the Son for the Father within the one being of God. It's revealed right there at the cross. And as we've seen it this week, that love of God then turns outward in the cross to embrace us, so that, as John says there in 1 John 4, so that we might live through Christ. So when people say to you, where is the love in the world? We can say, Look here. Look at the cross. See here the character of God. He is love in himself and towards us. If you want to know if there's love in the world, look here to God in the cross. But the cross also shows us there is justice. We saw this week in a passage we've come back to a number of times, Romans 3. God doesn't ignore human sin and wickedness. The good news is God is not indifferent to evil in this world. No, he's just. He acts rightly. Sin and evil does get what it deserves when God takes action against sin and condemns it in the person of his son. You can see what Paul says there. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous, 
and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you want to know, will there ever be justice in this world? If you wonder, who's going to make those people pay who do terrible things, who shoot down planes, who start wars, who abuse children in secret? If you want to know who's going to make them pay, look at the cross. Know this, God will not let it slide. He condemns sin, even at great cost to himself, because he is just, he sees justice done, and he will see justice done. Look at the cross for the proof. But also the cross shows us there is victory. Uh, we saw this on Wednesday night, how God disarms the spiritual powers and, and authorities by removing any legitimacy to their accusations that they might try to lay against us. Uh, Colossians 2, we saw God disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So, when the world wonders, is there anything that can deliver me from the spiritual oppression and fear in which I live? Is there anything that can really deliver me, rescue me from the superstitions and the fears of spiritual curses or bad luck that millions of people around the world are held in slavery by? There is an answer. There is victory over those powers. It's here at the cross. The one true living God wins the victory through the death of his son for us. Finally, God reveals at the cross that there is sovereignty. We can often think, is God really in control? If God were really powerful and good, then surely he would intervene and stop the terrible evil and suffering that hits our world. You know, the, the suffering and evil that hits us wave after wave after wave. Surely God would do something about that if he was good and powerful. Well, what the cross reveals about God is that he is sovereign he is in control and he is working to, to bring out his good purposes even through bad things. Have a look at how the Apostle Peter describes the cross in Acts chapter 2. This man Jesus handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is, what happened at the cross didn't catch God by surprise, right? This was all happening under God's sovereignty according to his plan. But then he goes on. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. So through their most evil act, their killing of the Messiah who was God himself amongst us, in the midst of that, through their evil act, God was still sovereign. It was the depth of sin. And they were held responsible, as Peter goes on to make clear. But God used it in his sovereignty to achieve his good purpose for all of us. So when people ask, where is God? When they talk about the Malaysian airline tragedies. Well, they say, where is God? When they talk about the neglect of the poor, or the corruption of governments, or oppression under the powerful, and ask, where is God? What, what is he doing? Look at the cross. See there? In the very deepest depth of human sin, God was still sovereign. 
working to achieve his good purpose for us. So when we look at the cross, we see the character and power of God. He reveals himself to the world. Don't just stand there and look at the stars. Don't go into your philosophy tube and think that that's where you're going to get the deepest insights into the character of God. Look at the cross. There is love. There is justice. There is victory. There is sovereignty. It's found in God and he's revealed those things to us at the cross. I think it's astounding to think that the God, the one true God of the universe, who made the heavens and earth, chooses to reveal himself most clearly to us there, at the grisly, gruesome cross. I mean, of all the places and ways God could have chosen to reveal himself, why did he choose this, of all places? But that actually tells you something profound and amazing about God, something that the world on its own would never come up with. Which leads us to the next point, page 45. We should proclaim the cross because the cross is God's subversion of the world. I've already talked about this a little bit this morning, actually, because we looked at it in 1 Corinthians. So I'm not going to say heaps about it, except that in the cross, God deliberately subverts the values and assumptions of the world that has rejected him. So the world says, the cross, stupid, foolish. God says, here is the place I will show my wisdom. And the fact that you write it off as stupid and foolish, that will actually reveal how foolish and stupid you are. He subverts the world in its wisdom. So the world says, looks at the cross and says, the cross, it's weak. God says, here is the place I will show my strength in saving you. And the fact that you reject it actually shows you to be weak and powerless because you can't save yourself apart from this. And as we saw last night, the world says, me first. That's how to have a life. But Jesus says, no, it's me first. It's only by denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me that you save your life. So in the cross, God subverts the supposed wisdom and power of the world, revealing them actually to be foolish and weak. So a fourth reason then to proclaim the cross. It's here that we find God's comfort for the suffering. Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking, this is the key bit, right? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners 
so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. That is, when we face suffering, look to the cross. Take heart from the example of Jesus, who endured such suffering while looking forward to the joy he was promised in resurrection and ascension. And taking our cue from Jesus, that gives us a model to follow when we suffer. Moreover, actually, that God came amongst us in the person of his son and suffered like this, that does say something very significant in the face of all the human suffering that we see around us. God understands what it is to suffer. John Stott says this, It is wonderful that we may share in Christ's sufferings. It's more wonderful still that he shares in ours. Truly, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively, respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolises divine suffering. And finally, the cross is also God's assurance to us amidst uncertainty. I'm going to finish with this passage now from Romans 8. Because what we see at the cross is the character and action of God towards us. We are so easily, I think, dislodged from a sure footing in our faith. We so easily forget what he's done for us in Christ and what he says, what it says about his heart towards us and what it means for us now before him in Christ. So in this bit of Romans 8, Paul is getting very excited about the cross, about what the cross means for us. And it would be great if these truths were written deep into your hearts and minds as we go out together into the next year, in fact, into the next 10 years, into the next 50, 60 years that the Lord might give you so that you might have assurance amidst uncertainty. Romans 
What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Praise God! But don't keep it to yourself. Remember, this is God's good news gospel for the world. This is the great truth that he's entrusted to us, this treasure, yes, in clay jars. So grab hold of it in joy and faith and go and proclaim it to the very ends of the earth and to the very ends of your days and then we'll keep going on proclaiming it in the new creation for endless ages to come. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired Saviour, whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. Forth on your errands, send us to labour for your sake. To the glory of the Father, Son and Spirit. Amen.